chapter 24, verse 50. With all the breaks we've had, which there's been a few, planned and unplanned, we have been in Luke's gospel for well over three years, three years and say, I think about three months or four months or so. Uh, We were supposed to finish uh, Luke's gospel back in April, um, but because of all the COVID-19 things, providentially, uh, we were hindered to do so, and that's okay. We were able to turn to the Psalms for a good period of time, and that was such a blessing. Uh, But today, we finished Luke, and I'm bitterly and happily joyful to do so. Uh, Bittersweet uh, for me uh, in that. Uh, Lord willing... We will start next week. I'm going to give you a two-for-one special over the next 30-something or so weeks of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament. That's where we will start um, next, uh, Lord willing, next week. There's a lot of water still going over the bridge at this point, and uh, Lord willing, like I said, we'll be there uh, next week. There's something to be said about finishing something. Finishing a project, the end of a year, um, completing or finishing a puzzle, finishing a good book or a bad book, uh, finishing school, etc. And oftentimes in those times of finishing, there's a great sense of relief, a great sense of accomplishment and gratitude that we have to be able to finish something and complete something, especially if it's one of those major milestones of, of, of life, such as graduation or moving on or whatever it may be, moving out or, or something like that. Uh, it could be kind of sad. Um, yet often when we finish one of those things, and this is where I'm going to sound like a good motivational speaker Often it opens the doors to new opportunities, right? And, and other projects, which are good. You see, we might have come to the end of Luke's gospel today. And it seems as if that would be the end of the story. But the ending of Luke's gospel is actually more like the beginning. It's almost like it's just part of the introduction to the rest of the Sermon, the rest of the work by which God would accomplish the moving out of the gospel from Jerusalem to the rest of the world to now where we are today, over 2,000 years later. Jesus resurrects from the dead. Chapter 24, he, he hangs out with his boys for a while, and then he ascends into heaven. Is that really the end? Is that the ending that we had hoped for? The story gets really good. Lord willing, maybe one day we will go through the book of Acts together. But if not, go read it for yourself and you'll see the rest of the story. So even though this gospel ends for us, at least today, it is only just the beginning. And in these last four verses have such deep meaning and deep purposes of joy and hope and blessings for us. So let's look at Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 50. 
Then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifted up his hands. He blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried away into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, inerrant word for our joy and for his glory. Amen. That's it. That's the, that's the end of, of Luke's gospel. These four verses, these very four short little verses, close out that massive Three long journey that we have been through together. And even though that's the end, we've just said it before, that there's so much more for us to see, to come and act. But there's also a much for us to take, take in this morning. Luke sums up here in these four verses the 40-day the period between Jesus' resurrection and then this day when he departs from his disciples. So I want, to, I want you to first notice a few things about this passage. Actually, just two things. So, so first, the, the elephant in the room, the elephant in the passage. It's really brief, but it's really important. And that is the ascension of Jesus into heaven. What is the deal with Jesus just floating off into the sky, away and away into the heavens, away from his disciples? Not in a hot air balloon, mind you. That would be pretty climactic. What in the world are we supposed to make of that? What is the significance and the importance of Jesus ascending into heaven? I like what R.C. Sproul says about it. He said, Christ's ultimate act of glory was not in his resurrection. That was penultimate. Because in biblical history, his ascension must be ultimate because that's when Christ was elevated to the throne of the universe, the king of kings. The ascension of Jesus was the ultimate act of, the glo- of his glory. We make much of his incarnation. Right? We celebrate Christmas. We make much of his resurrection. We, we, we call it Easter. Well, some people call it Easter. We call it Resurrection Day. Resurrection Day. And, and we celebrate this resurrection every Sunday. And it's, it's extremely important. And we should still understand now as well the significance of his ascension. We're going to spend a good amount of time on that this morning. But, but secondly, let me ask you this. Did you expect the disciples to react that way? Go back and look and look at the reactions. Look how sad they were. Look how disappointed they are and upset and depressed they are and confused. No, that was last chapter. Or it was earlier in chapter 24. What does it say? They had great joy. For for most of of Luke's gospel, we saw a bunch of bumbling fools who just kind of were stumbling along following uh, Jesus. And every time they were faced with any kind of adversity or bad news or they were depressed or scared or fearful... What happened to them? Anytime they faced anything, they got sad, depressed, fearful, lacking faith. 
in the, back in the upper room that night uh, before Jesus was arrested, he was there to celebrate the Passover. And it was exciting, Passover. And, and, and they were beginning to think, man, this is when the kingdom is coming. The king is coming on his throne. He's going to vanquish all the enemies. They're excited. They're happy. And, and Jesus just sinks their whole evening by telling them one thing. Hey, boys, I have to leave. What do you mean you got to leave? Well, we'll be here when you get back. No, where I'm going, you, you can't go. And, and the whole evening is, is, is sunk. They're confused. They're, they're dismayed. But what does Jesus promise them that evening? He promises them when, they, when he leaves, they are going to weep. And that they would be sorrowful, sorrowful and sad. But it will be like the woman who's having a child. She's going to be in pain. I wouldn't know, but I've seen it firsthand. A few times. It... And they're sorrowful, and they're in pain, and they're in anguish. But when the baby is born, all that pain and anguish is no longer when they see the baby. And Jesus says, that's what you will experience. There will be, there will be joy. And that's the joy that they were promised. There would be joy. And that's the joy that we see here. And, and that's where I want to start first this morning. It's the joy that we see in the disciples. So we're kind of we're kind of going to flip the passage around, start from the bottom, and go up to the top. That's where I want to start this morning. Is the joy that we see in these disciples? Why in the world would there be so much joy? Why would they be joyful? It seems so counter to the story, doesn't it? It seems so. Uh, against human nature that they would experience joy when someone that they love and respect dearly who has been leading them for over three years whom they now seem has risen from the dead leaves them. I mean, any one of us, or someone who we love, whom we care for, if they leave or if they, they go away or if they pass away, we grieve. Rarely do we feel joy. We miss them and we wish that they would have never left. But here the disciples do what? They rejoice and they have joy and they worship God. They even go back to Jerusalem with great joy and blessing the Lord. How could they be so joyful? Well, the answer, excuse me, the answer to that question has come throughout our three-year journey in Luke's gospel. And there has been one common theme. Well, there's been several common things, but one of those common things has been the joy-producing work of God in the hearts of men. Do, do you remember all the way back to the beginning of Luke, to, the, to that real old couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth? Do you, do you remember how they couldn't have children? And the, this, is, this is the Christmas story, right? Uh, part of the Christmas story. And, and the angel came to Zechariah and promised them that they would have a child. And they, would, and, and they will have joy and gladness when they have this child. Because their son, John, would do what? Well, because John had a, a point and a purpose to his life. That he would what? Make ready the Lord a people. He would prepare the way for the Lord. Well, prepared for what? 
for the Lord's coming. But what was the Lord going to be doing? He was going to be bringing salvation. This child would bring you great joy and, and gladness, but this purpose of what this child would do would be to prepare the way of the Lord. And that way is the way of salvation. Remember Mary. And, and when she, she had a song that she sang to Elizabeth when, she, when they got together, their cousins, and they got together, and Elizabeth was already uh, with child, and so was, was Mary, and the, the, the baby in, inside of Elizabeth, John did what? Leapt for joy in the womb. Why? Because salvation is coming. Mary sung, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. She rejoiced. Why? Because through her God, He was bringing salvation. The angels told to the scared shepherds the night that Jesus was born, what? Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Not just because of, the, of a birth of another child. I mean, that's, that was something to be joyful and to rejoice and to, to celebrate. But this child was what? In the city of David, was born to you this day, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Joy because salvation has come. And then there was Simeon, and there was Anna in the temple, waiting to see this child who was their salvation, the redemption of Israel. And when they saw this child, when they saw the hope of Israel, what did they have? They had joy. And then for the next 24 chapters, we're only 22, 23 at that point. For the next 23 chapters, what do we see? We see how God, who has truly sent his son, would accomplish salvation that would be for the joy of his people. And Luke's intent is for us to know these things, that we would be certain in these things, right? All the way back to Luke chapter, I'm writing these things so that you will have certainty in these things. And why? Just so that we can have something to win an argument by? Or something that we can, we can hold on to like as if it's a, 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 just another fact? No, so that we would have certainty that produces joy in the sovereign Savior. The one who has been sent to save us. So why were all the d- disciples now all of a sudden joyful and rejoicing and Worshiping and, and even heading back into the teeth of suffering and difficulty and persecution that's to wait for them in Jerusalem? Because they got it. Because they got it. Their, their minds have been opened to the understanding of the, to the word of God. Jesus taught them concerning all, uh, all things and, the, and all the dots started connecting in their hearts. And what did they get? They get that salvation has come in Christ. Christ has brought them joy because salvation has come to their lives and to the world. And they've seen how God has fulfilled all of his promises in his son. 
They understood his message and they understood his message, his mission. They understood it. It all made sense now why God sent his son, the Messiah, to die, to be buried and to be resurrected from the dead. And now to leave them ascending on high. They understood it because it was for their joy. It was the same joy that the angels proclaimed the night that he was born. Their joy has found its source. Their joy has found its fountain. Their joy has been found in Christ Jesus alone. You know, back in John 16, it's the, the upper room. I was talking about it just a few minutes ago. And Jesus told the illustration about the, the mothers having the baby. And this is what he says right after. He says, so also you will have sorrow now but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. There is a gospel promise there. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever asks of the father in my name, he will give it, he will give it to you until now. You have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. John 16, 22 to 24. So that their joy would be full. Now that night, they still got sad. For the next three days, they were still sad. They were still upset. But on this day, when Jesus departs, he leaves them and they aren't sad anymore. They're joyful because they understood God's purposes and God's mission. And that gives them joy. God answered all their prayers. All the, answered all the prayers of, of his saints before. Of Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Simeon and Anna and the countless before that. The apostles' joy never subsided either from that point. In fact, it was the same joy that the Apostle John continued to preach and proclaim throughout his life. He even wrote about it and, and, and to, to draw others into that joy. First John 1 John 1.4, he says, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete, may be complete. Brothers and sisters, the joy that we have in Christ... It's not a joy that comes from this world. It's not a joy that comes from uh, circumstances. It's not a joy that comes from trials or sufferings. But it's a, a joy is a sovereign trust in God. It's us trusting in Him and knowing that He is in control of all things and that if He has accomplished His mission and what He has said is true, then He is faithful to keep His promises until the end. That is joy in Christ. Brothers and sisters, biblical Christianity isn't boring. It isn't a snooze fest. It isn't full of grumbling and complaining. It isn't miserable. It isn't grieving without hope in a fallen world. Biblical Christianity is rooted in deep joy that Jesus Christ's mission is accomplished. And therefore, we stand together in that joy, no matter what comes our way. We have joy in our Savior because God has accomplished our salvation through His Son.
and it is completely finished. No more struggle, no more striving, no more burdens. We cast them on Christ, and we take his yoke, for it is light. Brothers and sisters, would your Christian life this morning be marked with joy and with delight in Jesus Christ? So that's the first thing I wanted you to see. I wanted you to see the joy that was found, the joy that was there that day when Jesus departed. But now I want to talk to you about the amazing significance of Jesus' ascension which was joy-producing. Because his ascension is a constant reminder of our hope. And I'm going to show you those things today, this morning. I, I think for most of us, if, if you have Christian experience, man, upbringing or over these last years, um, we really haven't talked much or, or the ascension of Christ. That, that's not brought up very much, is it? It's not, it's not talked about uh, very much. The, the, its significance isn't, isn't talked about very much. It's kind of just tacked on to the end of our beliefs or statement of faith. It's in the Apostles' Creed and, 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 uh, another, and our statement of faith as well. And, and yet still hardly ever talked about. And, and it was a kind of an odd event, but it was what fueled the joy of these disciples. It gives them hope. It gives us hope. And I hope it's something as we consider this morning, we will see the hope that it produces in us as well. And in verse 51, it says, While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. I know it's brief. There's not much information there. There's not a lot of detail there. Acts chapter 1 actually gives a, a little bit more detail, fuller uh, idea of what's going on here. But, but there are two details that Luke gives us here about this ascension that are very important. He says, he parted from them, which means he's gone. He left. And second, he was carried up into heaven. Now, I, does, I, know, that doesn't, uh, I, I know that doesn't sound much uh, like much of a description. But the New Testament over and over shows us the significance that the disciples had of this event. And then how it produced an unshakable hope and joy even when he was departing from them. And we want to see this morning how it fuels our hope and our joy. Well, let me show you some of those, those, some of those things. First, Jesus shows his, uh, first Jesus' ascension shows his exaltation. Uh, from all the passages in the New Testament describing uh, Jesus' ascension, it is very clear that he literally was carried up and ascended into heaven. And I believe that. Now, what it actually looked like, I don't know, besides Jesus going up into heaven. But so it does leave us with some questions. One of those questions have been asked is, well, is heaven just beyond the clouds in the sky? Is that where he went? He just knocked on the door on a cloud and walked in. No, that's not it at all. God is not bound by space and time. He is not limited to miles or light years, or the created universe cannot hold the creator God. Heaven is not just beyond the clouds. Heaven is, um, one of the things I read about this week, it said, heaven is in another sphere. It's another sphere completely. 
That is where God is wholly experienced and known. And that is where Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father. Not very helpful in giving us GPS coordinates, is it? But certainly that helps us understand. But what's really important is not the specifics of where Jesus was ascending to, but it's where he ended up. In heaven. The right hand of his Father. That's where Jesus went. That's where he was ascending into heaven. And actually, the only thing I can really think of the significance of, of, of his ascension is that it's the way he's going to come back. He's going to come back out of the, the clouds when he comes back again. You can come up with more as well, I'm sure, and probably have heard some really good ones and help me in that as well. Um. And you know, when Jesus, the, the night that he was arrested, he prayed in John 17, verse 5. He says, he says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He was praying for his glory to be returned in the way when he got back to the Father. And yet, what we see happening, though, is it seems as if Jesus, when he is, comes back and he's uh, 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 exalted to the right hand of the Father, that seems as, he is, as if he became more glorious than his original glory because of his sinless earthly life and obedience unto death. So how can the Son of God, who is infinitely glorious, become now more glorious? The answer, I think, is in front is in Philippians 2. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. How is Christ made more glorious? He is given a name that is above every name. And what is that name? Well, brothers and sisters, that name is the sweetest name we know. Jesus. It is Jesus. The name that was given to him while he was on earth, it was that name that he has been exalted and glorified and given in heaven. It will be throughout all eternity, even with the scars of his sacrifice. And why is that name more glorious? Why is that the highest of high names? Because Jesus means God saves. God saves. He is our salvation. He is our Savior. And on that day, the disciples saw the sovereign Savior's glorification. And they saw his exaltation to the right hand of the Father. They caught a glimpse of it. They are seeing according to the rest of uh, Philippians 2, so that at the name Every, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What the whole world will see one day as they bow before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, the disciples got a glimpse of that day. And it filled them with great joy of as God has accomplished his mission. The exalted Savior gives us great joy and hope in the supremacy 
of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's at his exaltation we see these things. Second, the ascension of Jesus shows that the work of salvation is finished. Certainly the, the, bo- the bodily resurrection is the proof of that sacrifice, that it was accepted, but the ascension proves that his work is finished, that it's completed. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus lived that perfect sinless life, a life that no one has ever lived, including none of us. In his death, he took on our sin and the penalty of our sin, bearing the full measure of the wrath of God, the death that we deserve. He became our substitute so that we could be forgiven our of our sins. And then his righteousness then would be given to us. It would be imputed upon us as if we've never sinned at all. The Puritans call this the, the great exchange. And so therefore our hope is in Christ because his finished work and his ascension that day proved that his work was finished. And one day we will be glorified like him. Sin will be no more. Death will be no more. And we will be with our king forever. So when he was ascended that day, he was exalted. And he sat down next to the father because the work was finished. If it wasn't finished, he would have never left. But it was done. The work of salvation is finished. So when I said earlier, the no more striving, no more burden, I mean the the striving of, of, of sin and struggle between you and the Lord. He has brought peace between us and God. The ascension of Jesus Christ was like a, a promise that as we trust in his finished work of salvation, when we trust in Jesus Christ alone that our sins was imputed upon him and his righteousness was imputed upon upon us, upon you, then we too one day will be glorified with him. Even now, we, we catch glimpses of that now. When we are saved, we are brought from death to life, from darkness to, to light. We're made into new creation so that even now we can experience a piece of that glory and experiences joy now. John 10, 10, the thief comes to only still kill and destroy, but I have come to give life, life abundantly, joy in him. Third, the ascension is the guarantee of his future glory for his church. Jesus said that he would leave And he told his disciples that he would leave. And when he does leave, he's going to go do what? He says, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And when he comes back, he's going to take us to that place. Can you imagine the place that he has been preparing since then? And he has given us, as the church, a guarantee 
that the place that he has been preparing for us will be there for us when it is when he is ready. Second Corinthians 1.22 tells us of that guarantee. He who also put his seal on us and has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Second Corinthians 5.5. 5, he who has prepared for us this very thing is God who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. Ephesians 1.14, who, the Holy Spirit here, is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. When Jesus ascended, what did he promise would come? The promise of the Holy Spirit would come upon his people. And this Holy Spirit is the guarantee that his church will receive its inheritance. Could you imagine a greater guarantee to the greatest of promises than God himself dwelling in you? Could you imagine a greater guarantee? There is not a warranty out there that compares. And you know what? I don't think this guarantee comes with a lot of fine print, unless you've got a really small written Bible, right? Not a lot of fine print here. Not a lot of lawyers speak. It's guaranteed. The Holy Spirit is given to us, dwelling in us, as our guarantee of the glory for us that awaits. And, and that brings us to the fourth point. The, the ascension of Jesus Christ ensures the pouring out of the ministry of the Holy Spirit upon his people. We talked about it last week, verse 49. You can see that promise. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. The promise of the Holy Spirit, even from the Old Testament, the promise of the Spirit of God that would come and dwell amongst his people and in his, pe- his people. The, this is the Holy Spirit. John 16, 7 says, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if, you, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And Jesus surely departed. He is not here with us this morning in the flesh. But he has surely given us his Holy Spirit. And his Holy Spirit is in us, those who are in Christ this morning. And he is our helper And what Jesus says, that is to your advantage. Because if Jesus was with us this morning, what about Fletcher? What about Southbridge? I mean, mean, Jesus probably could make it there in time. They start at 11. But too bad for everyone else. So what's the, the advantage is, is the Holy Spirit dwells within us. When Jesus ascended, It would seem as if Jesus is going further and further and further and further away, and he did, until they couldn't see him no more. But rather, what was Jesus doing? He was drawing closer. He was drawing closer and closer and closer to us, to, to according to Ephesians 3.16, the Holy Spirit strengthens us with power into our inner being. How much closer can you get than your, than in your inner 
being. Christ is nearer to us now than ever. When Jesus was in the flesh, he could only be with a few of the disciples. That wouldn't go very good with the mission of, of taking and proclaiming the gospel to the nation. So it is to our advantage that he would leave and that he would send his spirit to dwell in us. And that he's closer to you than anyone else to empower us. He draws us to holy living, to be separate in this world, to be salty in this world, to be light in the darkness. He opens our hearts and our minds to the, to the word of God. He's constantly drawing us to exalt Christ in our hearts. Romans 8, he's testifying to us that you are a son and not a slave. And he is the, once again, reminding us over and over again that he is the guarantee of our future inheritance in Christ. Fifth, the ascension of Jesus Christ began his ministry of intercession as our great high priest. Again, back to Romans 8, we hear this very familiar passage in this very amazing chapter. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? There's a promise. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of the Father. We see it now. He's exalted. Who indeed is interceding for us. You see how where Christ is now fits within the importance and the significance of all the gospel and Christian life. He is at the right hand of the Father. And what is he doing? He is interceding. He's interceding for you. He's interceding for me. He's praying. He's petitioning for you. He's petitioning for me. Listen to this. Since then, we have a great high priest. This is from Hebrews chapter 4. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He is interceding for us on our behalf before the Father as our great high priest, who was like us in every way as we were tempted, yet he was without sin. And the very fact that Jesus has ascended and now exalted and glorified next to the, next to the Father is, is should give us at the very uh, center of all of our hope and all of our Christian life the, the daily truth and joy and hope that Christ is interceding for you on our behalf. When we are a slug and we are not paying attention and we're not listening and we're not thinking of the things of God, 
and we are in the flesh and we're acting worldly and we're angry or we're impatient or we're giving to fear or we're giving into the suffering and trials all around us. Jesus is pleading for on our behalf and the Holy Spirit is drawing us closer to him. That's powerful. That is at the center of our Christian hope this morning, brothers and sisters. He's given us his Holy Spirit. He has not abandoned us. And that's what them boys realized that day. He left us. He's getting closer. But we have a Savior who is interceding for us daily as a sympathetic great high priest. Can you take comfort in that this morning? I sure can. I needed to be reminded of that. Take comfort in that this morning. Delight in that truth. Let that deepen your joy in Christ. And lastly, his ascension directs our faith and desires upon him. You, you know that day when, when Jesus ascended, uh, and, and Acts actually gives us, like I said, gives us a little more lengthy, and the, the boys just kind of, they just kind of stood there looking up into the, up into the sky and, until he disappeared, and it's almost like they're all still standing there going, wait, wait a minute, I think I see him. He's like, no, you don't, John, he's gone, you know, kind of thing. And, and, and then there were these angels that showed up and, and said, hey, guys, you got to get going. Time, time, time to get rolling. And in a great way, What the disciples witnessed that day is what the ascension should also remind us and how we live here today. It's a reminder to us of the one to whom we really want to be with. It's a reminder of the place that we really want to be. The ascension of Jesus Christ realigns our desires to be with the one who is at the right hand of the Father. Now, it doesn't leave us proverbially on, in Bethany on the side of the mountain with our faces staring into the sky because the angel still said, go. And we we're called to be obedient to the to the gospel and obedient to the work of the gospel and to take, to take it to the nations and proclaim repentance and, and faith in Christ and that he would receive all the glory for those things. We're called to, 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 to work hard and to, to cultivate around us in our, in our jobs, in our, in our homes. And we are to press into all that we do, the, the best that we can do in everything that we do. In every job, in every task, in every project and relationship, and even in the mission, we work as unto the Lord. But brothers and sisters, you know, underneath all of our cultivating, underneath all of our struggle and strife in this life, all the work, ministry, etc., all that we can gain and all that we can achieve in this life, The ascension of Jesus Christ reminds us that all of our success in this life, all of our rewards, is not what we are ultimately going after. What we are ultimately going after, what we're ultimately aiming at, is to be with Jesus. Is to be with him. We want to be with him. And if that's true about us, 
then we can face trials and suffering and persecution and even failure. Because the true reward is not what we see here, but the true reward is Jesus Christ himself. And he is far worth more than any reward or earning that we could ever gain here. He is the treasure that we have found, that we go and we sell everything to buy the land, to have that treasure. And we are called to keep our eyes on that prize. This is why I love and I need to be a part of the body of Christ. Because each and every Sunday, it is a constant reminder to those deeper joys and the greater desires for Christ himself and not the things of this world. I want to close where Jesus started this passage. What was Jesus doing before he departed them? He was lifting up his hands and he blessed them. The very last thing that Jesus does for his guys, his boys, his people, and it's the very last thing that they see is what? They see Jesus blessing, blessing them. With all their fumbling, with all their stumbling, that's the last thing they see. He gives them a a benediction on them, like we, we do every Sunday at the end of our service. After we pray, after we read scripture and we pray, we have the benediction, a blessing of the people. This is what God did at the very beginning. After creating Adam and Eve, what did he do? He blessed it. This is what the the priests would do. He would bless the people after the sacrifices that were, were made. And this is what Jesus does. This is one of the last things we see Jesus do, blessing his people. Jesus blesses his people. And he has poured his blessings out on us, hasn't he? In all of Luke's gospel, we have seen his blessings, we have seen hope, and we have seen joy for all of those who believe and trust in Jesus Christ and receive it in faith. I hope that this journey through Luke's gospel has been edifying and encouraging. I hope that it has built us up. I hope that the word of God has had its full effect in your heart and life daily. I hope that you have gained a deeper and rooted certainty in the gospel. And all that we have taught about the Lord Jesus Christ was not only historical truth, but transformational truth. I hope that you have gained a deeper understanding of the gospel and the story of the gospel. I hope that you have learned the deep joy and treasure in the promises of God to have pleasure in God and to exalt the name of Jesus Christ in all things. I hope the church, this church, has been built up and has been brought closer together in the study of Luke's gospel. And may God receive all the glory and all the honor and all the praise in these things. Sola Deo Gloria. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, have, we love you and we thank you for your kindness toward us in these days. We thank you, O oh Lord, for the study through Luke's gospel. We thank you that you have been faithful and kind and you've given us these days to do so. Lord, we pray that your, your word would continue to, 
produce the work and the fruit that it does in our lives. Thank you for the great truth of what we have seen this morning. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who indwells in us now. We thank you, O oh God, uh, in Christ, that you are praying for us. You are interceding for us on our behalf, for our church and for our people. Lord, would you be with us now in these, in these days? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.